Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. We didn't want to upset the general public. We didn't want the landowners to think we were taking anything away from them. So I actually used this stretch of the river right here as kind of our test deal mm -hmm. because I was the only landowner on this side of the river, and we just used this middle area to let fish grow for a little bit. Yeah. And, of course, fish don't stay where they are. Right. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they migrate up and down the river. So in very short time, larger fish started showing up in the, in the areas where you could keep fish yeah. as well as the areas you had to release them. So it just started, you know, wow, this isn't such a bad thing. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast, presented by Inman. We sit down with men and women from the Ozark that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kyle V. Welcome back for another episode of the Ozark Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Veet, and I am joined by frequent co-host of the show and my good buddy, Kyle Plunkett. How are you? Hey, thanks for letting me back on. Yeah, man. It's, uh, I've had you on a couple in a row. That's right. It's, it's good to have you back on. We're going to go to some cool places and meet some cool people, so it's been cool a blast. People. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are, and, and today is, is, you know, keeping on that path. Today, we, we have a truly, truly special guest with us today. Uh, we're at his his river cabin um, here out by the Beaver Dam, and uh, man, the the impact that our guest has has had on so many people. Uh, really, if you're listening to this podcast in some way, shape, or form, you've been impacted by uh, our guest here today, whether you know it or not, and whether you like it or not. Um, <laughs> and so, I could go through and read, a, you know, an intro that would probably take 20 minutes to go through of of all the things that you've done in, in your career and. Um, but I don't want to ruin it. We'll get to all the good stuff. So um, without further ado, I just want to go ahead and, and welcome to the podcast, former Game and Fish Commissioner and Chairman and Arkansas Outdoor Hall of Famer, Mr. Kirk Dupes. How are you? Great, thank you. Great, thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having us out here to your, to your cabin. I hope you enjoy it. We, uh, we sure have for years and years. It's a, it's a really, cool, really cool spot. We were walking around here. You got so many different antlers and animals and all kinds of stories and memories in here. My wife calls this the my dead animal museum. I hope, I hope to have one of those someday. <laughs> a dead animal museum. Every man needs a dead animal museum. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool spot and uh, we're excited to be out here with you. And uh and and really what we wanted to do with you today is is get together with you. We were fortunate enough to kind of cross paths um through James Brandenburg, um, the BHA chapter president, uh, and um, kind of just struck up a conversation at the chapter of the year party and um, kind of just started talking about what you've done in your career. I've learned a little bit about you since then, but wanted to have you on the podcast to, to talk about what you've done in your career. I know you've, uh, you've rubbed some shoulders with some incredible people over, over your lifetime and um, have had a huge impact on outdoorsmen and, and really all people in the state of Arkansas. And so... Um, Wanted to have you on and kind of tell your story. There's a lot of people, we were talking about this right before, who 
you know, we enjoy the Ozarks and the resource that it is. Um, and we always have, and, you know, I'm 27 years old and, uh, I've just kind of sometimes take it for granted all the, all the things that we have and the resource that we have. And so to hear the stories behind it and how we got here, I think is important for people to hear. So we never kind of take it for granted. And so I know you've had a, a big impact on a lot of this stuff. So anyways, that's, that's what we're here for today. I don't know what, how big an impact I've had, but, uh, I've sure have enjoyed uh, getting involved in conservation. Uh, that's why I was so excited when we met, uh, I was so excited about where we met, mm-hmm. uh, that, chapter that bha chapter is just incredible in two years can you imagine what they've done to become the national chapter of the nation it's i mean impressive. just it's real impressive and that's that's where conservation starts in my opinion with groups of people that get together like that and it builds and builds and builds and uh and they've just done a wonderful job so far yeah really absolutely absolutely uh so before we get into to everything that you've you've worked on and done in your career let's just kind of start with uh, who are you? Where are you from? Uh, just a little bit of background of, of kind of how you grew up and how you got into the outdoors. Well, my wife would tell you I've never grown up, but, okay. uh, <laughs> but I, uh, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, um, uh, family of five, older brother and younger sister. Um, my brother and my father and I loved to hunt and fish, uh, but had very few places where we could do it uh, without traveling a, a tremendous distance okay uh and that became a, a goal of mine to to live somewhere where i could where i could hunt and fish and be with nature without having to drive 100 miles and have a hotel and do all that right. stuff yeah uh, so that's one of the things that started me early on getting excited about conservation uh and anyway i um i lived in 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 Louisville, uh, most of my life, uh, dated my wife now for nine years, all the way through high school and college. Uh, worked for the Kroger Company as a bag boy in the grocery stores when I started, and and um, kind of fell in love with retail. Mm. Uh, wanted to be a dentist. Finally got accepted to dental school after after four <laughs> years of undergraduate school, and then decided I didn't want to go to school for four more years. Yeah. <laughs> Wanted to get married. It is a lot of school. Didn't know what to do with a biology, chemistry degree, uh, but I stayed with Kroger and was in management and was with them in, in Louisville and in St. Louis and in their headquarters in Cincinnati. And, and um, then Sam Walton asked me one day, I was speaking at a meeting in Phoenix, and he was speaking at the same meeting, and he came up to me and said uh, his family owned a small grocery chain in Arkansas and asked if I would be interested in coming to work with them and um after several phone calls and meetings later i decided to do that and uh moved my family to arkansas yeah and you where were you living at the time you were in cincinnati at at that time we were in st louis you're in st louis Uh okay gotcha so you moved from big old st louis to bentonville arkansas yeah and what year was that that was in oh gosh 1986 what the heck was going on around here then absolutely nothing yeah. <laughs> there was one stoplight in bentonville oh wow one stoplight there was one restaurant one motel um as a matter of fact uh when i went to work for the walton family um we built a grocery store uh on what now walton boulevard okay uh today it's the it's the uh logistics center for walmart but oh, that was yeah, a, yeah. that was a one of our food stores and uh i went to the mayor and said we need a stoplight out there mm-hmm. 
And he said, you sure do. You're making a mess out of the traffic. <laughs> I said, well, can we get a stoplight? And he said, yeah. I said, well, what do I need to do? He said, you need to buy one. I said, what? You're going to buy a stoplight? Uh-huh. I thought that was your job. So, so we <laughs> actually bought the second stoplight then in Bentonville, Did Arkansas, you? to put out in front of that store. Wow. And he said, we'll, we'll pay for the electricity. You just buy, buy it and pay to have it installed, and we'll pay for the electricity. I <laughs> said, so, thanks. So you bought a stoplight. Yeah. Not everybody yeah. can say that. Yeah. But Bentonville was a sleepy, sleepy town in yeah. 86. Uh, and um, anyway, I... Uh, I became president of that company, and then a uh, partner and I bought the company from the Walton family. Okay. And we grew the business quite a bit for three or four years, and then I went back to Walmart and said, Walmart stores need to be in the food business mm-hmm. in a big way. Okay. Um, and Sam agreed, and we ended up selling the company we bought from the Walton family. We sold it to Walmart Stores, Inc. Gotcha. And then I stayed on with Walmart for several years and helped um, – Developed the super center concept with them, and uh, that's right. Yeah, was was that that was kind of like a that was a pretty original idea, right? Like nobody was doing a super center at the time. No, very no. There were hyper marts in uh, other countries, uh, but nobody was really doing anything in the U.S. Uh, Sam was a real visionary. I mean, he is an incredible individual, um, and and he was he had already started to get in the grocery business a little bit in the Walmart stores selling snacks and. Mm-hmm. And grocery type items, no perishables, but okay. uh, he he really knew and understood that if they wanted to continue to get sales at double digit increases like they were doing, once they had captured a huge a huge market share of the general merchandise, if they wanted to continue to grow like that, they had to get into food or fuel or something that had huge sales ability. Yeah, right. And uh, and so it just was a natural. They already had great traffic count and. When you add food to a store that people are shopping in once or twice a month, when you add food, they shop there five, six, seven times a month. Yeah, every and week at so least. So it increased the frequency and increased, of course, the, the market basket. Yeah. So Walmart wasn't doing groceries until they, they, until y'all, y'all did it, sold them back the company, and then... Well, they were dabbling in it. Okay. They had one test store in Washington, Missouri was okay. their first test store. And Sam asked me to go there and look at that and critique it. And, okay. And I told him it would never work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I, and I, I really did say that. I said it, it would never work just like it is. Right. It, uh, the grocery business is a little different in that, um, you know, you, you have to uh, – sell it or smell it. Mm-hmm. In the general merchandise business, you know, you can, you can hold take it. your time getting through it. Mm-hmm. And, but, yeah. um, but I said, if you can con- con- conquer perishables, if you can con- conquer meat and produce mm-hmm. and deli, uh, you'll you'll be a winner. And he knew how to do it, and hopefully I helped him a little bit yeah. along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really neat. It's it's really cool nowadays to, to hear people who rub shoulders with Sam Walton. There's... There's uh there's just there's not very many people left who who knew him personally and it's just it's cool that he asked you to come to work for Walmart and and kind of talk to you about buying the grocery store and just that whole story is is really cool. You have some good memories of of Sam. Oh, absolutely, uh, Sam and and uh, his whole family um, are just incredible individuals, uh, I, I, and so down to earth. Uh, when when we first agreed to come see him and see if we would want to live here. Mm-hmm. Um, he asked us to come to his house one morning. Oh, actually, I met him at the motel in Bentonville. The only for one. For breakfast. And uh, 
and went in the dining room and he said, where's your wife and children? I said, well, they're in the room. He said, well, bring them in here, bring them in here. And that, that's the way he was. Yeah. And he, that was on a Friday. He asked us to go to the Razorback game with him Okay. on Saturday the next day. Oh, and, and you're uh, a Louisville guy. Were you like anti-Razorback <laughs> no, at that time? No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Because I was kind of a U of L fan being from Louisville. My dad went to U of L, so okay. I, I wasn't a big Kentucky fan. If I, I gotcha. If I'd been a big Kentucky fan, I might have. Yeah, right. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so uh, we showed up at his house the next morning to go to the ball game. No security at his house. Nothing. No, not even a gated entry just drove right to his house and this was already after walmart had really ballooned yeah they right? were, i mean it was in 86 they were a big company yeah then, yeah wow. big company and uh i got out of the car walked up and knocked on the door the door was not locked it wasn't even closed when i knocked on the door the door just swung open and i knocked on it again and helen said come on in she, I don't. She assumed it was us, I guess. But I mean, it wow. could have been anybody. It could have been anyone. Yeah, yeah. It could have been the head of Kmart uh-huh. coming in there to, <laughs> to kill him. But anyway, I mean, <laughs> that's the way. Was just so unpretentious and so down to earth and so real. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was always his brain and his mind was always uh, leaving when everybody else was just getting there. Mm. I mean, it was he was three steps ahead of most people, ten steps mm. ahead of me. Wow. And, and uh, and his and his family's the same way, uh, particularly Rob Walton and and Jim, mm-hmm. um, incredible people. Alice, look what she's doing for for the arts and right. in Northwest Arkansas and and for the arts in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just they're wonderful people. Look, Tom and Stuart, mm-hmm. what they're doing for this area. Yeah, just amazing people. Yeah, it, it's you can you can really tell they they care about the area. They care about the people. Uh, they're they're focused on the right things. It feels like they really are, and and they know how to get it done. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was their age, I, I was just learned how to tie my shoes. It seems like <laughs> compared to the things compared to things you know they're doing. Today. Yeah, yeah, just incredible. Man, that's really cool. So you so you came to Arkansas. Um, before that, maybe let me let's just take a step back. How did you get into like uh, the outdoors? Did, was it like your influence, your father, um, your grandfather? I mean, what what kind of brought you into the into that way of life where you wanted to be outside and hunting and fishing? Mainly my father. Okay. Uh, we would we would talk a lot when we were rabbit hunting. Yeah. Without beagles, you know, <laughs> just jumping up rabbits. Of course, in in those days, I'm I'm a lot older than I think I told you. I've got socks older than you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, we didn't need we didn't need beagles to hunt rabbits. We didn't need pointers or setters to hunt quail. Mm-hmm. They were they were there. They were everywhere. Yeah, I wow. mean, you could literally just you know walk up a, a, a limit of quail and, and hunt them. Uh, as a matter of fact, in '86 in Bentonville, you could do that. Yeah, in the city limits so today, where it, yeah, there were quail everywhere. Golly, um, and uh, that's one of the things that got me excited as I saw that as I got older and I saw that that ability to do that, to enjoy wildlife like that, diminish. Mm-hmm. Not only not only did I see it diminish in, in the population of the wildlife, but I saw it diminish in the in the places you could go mm-hmm. to do that, to, right. to recreate, to hunt and fish. Um, and it's kind of always been a goal of mine to to have a place for everybody that wants to do it to do it without having to spend a lot of money and without having to travel huge distances. Right. I, uh, 
when I got on the commission, the Game and Fish Commission, the first thing I was asked was, what are your goals? I was interviewed by the reporter. What are your goals for the seven years that you're going to be on this commission? And I said to get as much land in public hands as we can for the public to enjoy, mm. uh, whether it's bird watching or hiking or biking or canoeing or kayaking or hunting or fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want us to end up like Texas where you have to be a millionaire to uh, hunt or fish. You have to have a, a lease on somebody's property or you right. have to own a big ranch. Yeah, high fence. Have right. high fences and stuff. And it's, it's, there's, as a percent of the land mass and a percent of the population, Texas has woefully little public hunting available. Wow. You know, compared really? to a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, not that they're doing things wrong. I mean, it's just that that's the way it evolved. Right. And, and, and I didn't want to see that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are some pretty, I mean, great goals, obviously, for someone coming in as commissioner. You, you talked about, and we've talked a little bit offline of, you came in um, as, as commissioner and and you felt like the, the group of people that were coming into the commissioner's office really all had kind of like the same mindset um, and, and were there for the right reasons and not, not as like a political pundit or anything like that. You guys were there to preserve the resource. The particular group that I, my my class, when I went through the commission, there were five of us that were absolutely interested in one thing, the and that was conservation. Mm. That was to promote the, the fish and wildlife uh, and to promote accessibility to the public. Uh, and not one of the five of us had any uh, independent um, ideas. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any... Um, political pressure, uh, even though it's a political appointment, all five of us were there because we wanted to be yeah. and we wanted to to try to make a difference. And some people have told me that that, uh, that, that was the first time they had seen a group like that all together at one time wow. uh, on the Game and Fish Commission. Because, because it is a political appointment, yeah. sometimes there's lots of varying opinions. Yeah. But um, I, I really felt good about that team. And having that group together, we were able to address some pretty controversial issues, too, that were not much fun to address. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like the three-point rule. I don't know if you all are familiar with that, but uh, Arkansas and uh, quality of their deer was just very poor, mm. very poor in the 80s and 90s. Okay. Um, the, uh, you know, everybody that hunted... If they'd see a, an antler, they'd shoot. Yeah, like, oh, uh, there's an antler. Yeah, gotta kill that. And uh, Whit Stevens uh, Jr. led the charge on that. He he uh, he said we got to get the three point rule passed. He said we can we can really make a difference in a short period of time mm-hmm. if we can get the get the hunting uh, public bought into that. And he worked diligently, and we all did on it. Um, through a lot of controversy, a lot of the deer camps just were really upset. I bet they hated y'all. They did. They really did. Um, but three years after we implemented it, virtually everyone that, that was upset with us was thanking us. They came back to say sorry and <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the same thing happened on, on catch and release, mm-hmm. uh, on trout, on the, on the White River. Yeah. Um, I got death threats, no joke death threats on the phone outfitters that said it's going to 
ruin our business. That's going to end my livelihood. Wow. Uh, it was horrible. Uh, three years after we implemented and people started catching trophy trout, uh, all of the outfitters, all of the uh, Jim Gaston, mm -hmm. Gaston's, thank you, thank you, thank you. Not, yeah. not only were the people who were fishing previously enjoying it a whole lot more mm -hmm. because they were catching some big fish. Mm -hmm. And we still had where you could keep fish. Yeah. It was just selected areas. Just certain sections of the river. But then it also, it brought in a whole new class of fishermen, fishermen from out of state mm -hmm. that, that come here to catch a trophy trout. You right. know, it's, uh, so it, it brought in people that were going to get motel rooms yeah. and that, eat at restaurants and that spend money. And, side of things. Yeah. 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 Get so, brunch at Gaston's. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but those kind of issues that are uh, not very popular are, are tough to do. And if, uh, yeah, but we got a lot of them done. I was really proud of that team. Yeah. How did you get appointed to be a commissioner? I mean, I, what is it? What is that even like? How does that happen? I know we kind of just talked a little bit, but tell, tell folks how, how does that process work? Well, and, uh, and how did it work for you specifically? I, I it's a better story. Too much of that. <laughs> uh, when I was appointed, uh, Bill Clinton uh, was president, was was governor, uh, wanting to be president, right? And uh, and I I had a real interest in getting on the commission because I was getting ready to retire from Walmart, mm -hmm. and I um, I wanted something to do where I could stay very involved in conservation and make a difference if possible. And I, since I'm a, a pretty conservative person, um, generally you would call me a Republican. Yeah. Um, I, uh, didn't, I thought it'd be difficult to get appointed by Bill Clinton because he was getting ready to run for president. And, right. As a Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but to make a long story short, I, uh, I just asked many friends and, and people I knew to um, support me and, and ask uh, Mr. Clinton to appoint me. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I asked Sam and Helen to uh, recommend me, and they did. And I asked Don Tyson, he did. I asked uh, J.B. Hunt, he did. Mm -hmm. uh, John Cooper of the Cooper Communities and... Some of those people that uh, Mr. Clinton knew well, right? Um, and uh, he appointed me. Yeah, I mean that's the way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Call the hip, the heavy hitters, and and, well, and get it done. Well, I, I I think they knew that that I was wanting to get on there for the right reasons. Right. I, I wasn't just didn't want to have my name on letterhead. Yeah. But I was honestly interested in. Yeah conservation absolutely i think it's really cool that the the time that northwest arkansas was growing from a, a business and family perspective with walmart jb hunt tyson all those names uh turning the area into what it's turned into now you specifically had a vision for the recreational side of what people are going to get to experience here in the in the ozarks of northwest arkansas and I mean, when you think hunting and fishing, the three-point rule, the catch-and-release areas, I mean, we have the deer we have today and the fish we have today because of you and your time with your team as uh, as commissioner of Arkansas Game and Fish. And the fact that both of those things, all, or I guess all of those things kind of came up together is really interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever put two and two together and thinking, as Northwest Arkansas was growing, so was the fishing and hunting industry, and so was the recreation and all the things that now we 
like we always say, take for granted, but also enjoy, <laughs> enjoy heavily right. and thinking like all this was happening about at the same time. That's it, really neat. It, it still amazes me to this day to think how Northwest Arkansas um, grew and and thrived like it did with no interstate. Mm-hmm. In the in the 80s, there was no interstate. There was no mall. Mm-hmm. There was there was no airport. There was nothing, and it yet it 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 supported the largest retailer in the world, yeah. the largest trucking company in the world, mm-hmm. the largest protein producer in the world the and at one time the largest planned community developer in the world wow it's it's incredible it in northwest insane. arkansas yeah. with no infrastructure yeah um it's 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 incredible but there's some wonderful people some smart people that uh that knew how to do things yeah or knew how to get things done yeah and that's as that's probably more important than knowing how to do it yeah Absolutely. How to get it done. And, and you're one of those people. No, I don't some know of the, about that. Well, some of the things we've talked about, three-point rule and, and, and the um, catch and release areas, maybe go into a little bit more detail on the, on the catch and release areas. How did you kind of get that started? Because you, you kind of sat in a unique position because of the property that you, you owned here on the White River, right? Right. The, one of the things we didn't want to do is, which we were not successful at, we didn't want to upset the general public like we didn't want the public to think we were taking anything away from them mm-hmm. that they couldn't keep a fish in this certain stretch of water, this small stretch of water. We didn't want the landowners to think we were taking anything away from them uh, if they had a business or a, a guide shop or whatever. Um, so I actually used this stretch of the river right here as kind of our test deal mm-hmm. because I was the only landowner on this side of the river for the proposed area. So, right. So we didn't have a landowner opposed. <laughs> yeah. And you were half the river. And on the other side of the river, only two properties were over there, and I was good friends with them, so they weren't opposed. So it was a great place to test. We didn't have the landowner problem. Right. We still had the outfitter problem and the guide problem and that and the public perception problem. Yeah. Um, so we started with just a small area, just a small area. And... Um, we let people keep fish at all the access points that, you know, the, up by the dam where you can put in, mm-hmm. down at Parker's Bottom. Right. You could keep fish where the main public fished. And we just used this middle area to let fish grow for a little bit. Yeah. And, of course, fish don't stay where they are. Right, they, yeah. They, they migrate They'll down move. the river. So in very short time, larger fish started showing up in the – in the areas where you could keep fish, yeah. as well as the areas you had to release them. Mm-hmm. So, so cool. it just started, you know, wow, this isn't such a bad thing. <laughs> this you know, works. I can still, if I want some meat down here, if I want trout for dinner, I go down there and catch it. If I want to try to catch a big one, I can either fish down here and hope one of them gets there, or I can go up there and catch and release one, take a picture. Man. And it started getting very, very popular. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then get got enough support here to enable us to do it, uh, you know, below bull shoals. Mm-hmm. And then with the cotter, we did all the trout waters. Gotcha. Got was, so on the White River, this was the first catch and release area. Yes. Did it then kind of spread to other rivers uh, around the state of Arkansas? Or are there are there areas like that on, on other streams? There are a few of them, and they're, and they're varied too, depending on the quality of the fishery there itself mm-hmm. and, and what needs to happen. Um, there's... Uh, They've tested some here and there, but the main the main focus is on the White River. Gotcha, gotcha. 
I, I wanted to ask you about, so as your time as commissioner, one of, one of the biggest things that I think has had an impact on the state of Arkansas and, and conservation in the state of Arkansas was the passage of the one-eighth cent sales tax. And you were instrumental, you and, and your class, as you kind of said, were instrumental in, in the passage of that, right? What, and, and it had been tried to be passed before, too. What was the story behind that, and how did you guys end up getting that passed? We barely did. It, uh, it was really nip and tuck. We, uh, what we tried to do was analyze what happened the two previous times it was, it was attempted. Okay. Um, both times it was attempted before our group was involved at all in Game and Fish. So we went back and tried to, I guess we did a forensic autopsy on what, what happened these last two attempts. And what we surmised was that there, it was so focused, the, the campaign was so focused on hunters and fishermen mm. that it didn't really catch the rest of the world. And only about 40% of the population of Arkansas hunts and fishes and is in, involved in outdoor activities that relate to game and fish. Mm. Only about 40%. That includes bird watchers. Really? And all, yeah. That's surprisingly, so, I don't know, that feels... Feels low. Feels it? low, it does. yeah. And it's, it's 40% and declining. And declining. Rapidly. Wow. Um, and uh, so we figured we got to appeal to some other people. Yeah. So instead of it just being a, a tax to support hunting and fishing mm-hmm. and to support fish and wildlife, why not... Let some of that tax support the parks and recreation, mm. which a lot of people were excited about. Right? Why not let it uh, support the Arkansas Natural Heritage Commission? Why not let support keep Arkansas beautiful? So we came up with a plan to uh, see if we could pass a one eighth of one cent tax, and forty five percent of that would go to the game and fish, forty five percent to parks and tourism. Eight uh, percent to Arkansas Natural Heritage Commission, and one and two percent to uh, keep Arkansas beautiful. Mm. So those organizations, those four groups, appealed to about seventy percent of the population. Gotcha. Somehow, about seventy percent of the population, or a little more, could put their mind around, "Hey, that's a good thing." Right. Yeah. Seventy percent of the people don't think. Putting a new tax is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, very few percent of yeah. people do, including the five of us commissioners. Right. We were not big on taxes. Yeah, you're not all. signing up for more no. taxes. No. But it was so sorely needed. The Arkansas Game and Fish Commission total budget when we passed that was $25 million a year. Okay. $25 million a year wow. for to manage all of the land that they've got. Right, the entire all, state. The entire state, all the lakes, all the rivers, all the, the wildlife management. And, and it, it was incredible. Yeah. The average age of the vehicles, the fleet for the Game and Fish Commission at the time, the average, I don't know what the average age was, average mileage was approaching 200,000 miles. Oh, wow. That was average. Yeah. And there were, you know, when a new one was bought, that brought the average down a lot. Yeah. So to be that high, mm-hmm. there was a lot of them that were yeah. way over 200,000 miles. But anyway, it was that 40%, 45% of one-eighth of a cent mm-hmm. doubled the Cayman Fish Commission budget in the first year. In one wow. year. In 19, 
when did we pass it? We passed it in 90, 94, 95. Okay. The first, the first year it doubled the doubled budget. Doubled it. So they went and bought some new vehicles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, wow, and, and paid off a lot of stuff that they were letting, and 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 rebuilt a lot of stuff that they didn't have the funds to support. Yeah, you know, a lot of the wildlife management areas mm-hmm. and whatnot. But anyway, and to date, that has generated that that forty five percent of one eighth of a cent has generated over six hundred million dollars to the game and fish. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I saw. I think I read online it was like eight hundred thousand. Is or sorry, uh, 800 million. 800 million yeah, now, yeah. is it? Yeah, it's, I knew it was huge. More than 600 million. It's, yeah. I think it's 800 million. Okay. Yeah, not 1,000. That's way too low. Um, man, that's incredible. And and that's one of the things that I was talking about. Whether you know it or not, you've been impacted. But it's it's something that has gone to keeping Arkansas beautiful and preserving the resources and the public land and, and managing all the stuff that we that we all enjoy and use. Right. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. Uh, and then another thing... In, in your time as commissioner, I know you spent a year as chairman. Um, maybe you want to talk a little bit about what that was like and, and how that was just a little bit different from, from being on the commission. Well, um, it, it really wasn't that much different because when we were on the commission, um, we, didn't, we didn't like uh, four to three decisions. Mm-hmm. There's seven commissioners. Um, we thought that was the worst outcome we could ever have. Yeah. So if we couldn't get six or seven people to vote on something, we kept changing it till we could. You wanted the unanimous. We wanted, we, wanted, we wanted that to be something that appealed to everyone but also worked for everyone. Gotcha. Uh, and we weren't selling, you know, we weren't taking away something good to, to let somebody have something they wanted. Mm-hmm. What we were doing was we, were, we would craft that thing until we all knew that that was the right thing for the resource. It was the right thing for the resource. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it. Right. And um, so that's that's that was one of the things that I loved when I was chairman because it wasn't controversial. Right. We all worked as a team. We had the same focus. Um, and when we passed something, it, it was virtually unanimous. Yeah, everyone pretty much agreed. That's one thing that the current chairman is doing very well. Mm. Bobby Martin, mm-hmm. uh, who's not only serving the the last part of a, the chairman's term that uh, is, is off the commission now. But he's also going to serve his full term as commissioner, as chairman. He is completely sold on that idea. Mm-hmm. And he he he's a seven-vote chairman. Yeah. Um, he wants that unanimous He's doing agreement. an incredible job, too. He's, uh, I don't know if you know Bobby, but he's, you need to interview him sometime. Okay, yeah, I haven't met him yet. He's... Uh, He's one of the people that knows Sam Walton, knew Sam Walton very, very well. Uh, Bobby um, headed up every major area of Walmart at some point in time, international. He headed up all the IT. He's, he's been uh, one of Sam's right-hand men forever, and and he's chairman of the commission now. He's an gotcha. incredible individual. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to reach out to him at some point. Serious duck hunter too. Is he? Mm-hmm. Is he from Central Arkansas? No, he's from right, he's, right here. Oh, I guess you said he's been up here at Walmart. Yeah, yeah, right here. But he has a a great duck hunting place in in uh, Stuttgart. Yeah, gotcha. Um, yeah, that's uh, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll have to reach out to him. Maybe get your get a, get his contact from you. Um, another thing you did was the the regional office for game and fish up here um 
that that wasn't always game and fish land. That that land used to belong to the Corps of Engineers, right? Right. And and you basically asked them to to donate that land. Is that how that went? Yeah, yeah. We uh, we didn't have much uh, of a presence in Northwest Arkansas. We the Game and Fish Commission. Um, everything was focused more on the larger cities, larger metropolitan areas, Little Rock and Fort Smith and Jonesboro. And, uh, we had very little focus up here in northwest Arkansas, yet we had tremendous amount of um, wildlife management areas, a tremendous amount of water. Mm-hmm. We had all of Beaver Lake, part of Table Rock Lake, mm-hmm. the White River, um, uh, all the wildlife management areas, and, and no real focus, uh, not even in Fayetteville. Or, or Rogers, and uh, so I uh, convinced the Corps of Engineers, who was kind of cash strapped at the time anyway, and didn't have the monies to maintain offices like the one they had here below Beaver Dam. Yeah, uh, I convinced them to donate that to the Game and Fish, and that would take expenses away from them and would give us a place to build a um, a regional office. Yeah. So again, you wanted that. So- this will help you, this will help us, kind of getting that unanimous agreement. Right. With all those things that you did, though, I kind of noticed a trend with the three-point rule, the the trophy uh, trophy area, catch and release, as well as the one-eight cent sales tax. Those are some things that were like pretty controversial. You you kind of leaned into like swimming upstream a little bit on a lot of those issues. How did you get everybody to kind of come together with a lot of that stuff? Well, it- we we don't we we never got everybody to come together as as it relates to the public, which yeah. I don't think you ever can. Right, and I don't I don't guess you ever should have a hundred percent agreement on anything. That's, it's really hard to do that anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I know. Living in Eureka Springs, there's a lot of people that that uh, have different opinions about a lot of things. Yeah, and I sure. mean, if if you were gonna stand on a street corner and hand out hundred dollar bills, there'd be somebody that would say there's <laughs> something wrong with that. You shouldn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> shouldn't do that. I know. But uh, we, we just really tried to, to convince people that, that what we were doing, they would be happy with. Yeah. yeah. I promise you, if you're not happy with it, we'll, we'll do away with it. Because mm-hmm. if you're not happy with it, we didn't, get, we didn't do what we were trying to do. Right. Yeah. So we tried to convince people. And, and once we had a couple of wins, it became easier. Mm-hmm. Because I think they, more, more tr- they trusted us more. Sure. They had more belief in what we were doing was for the right reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, so you finished up your time on the commission in 1999, and then right about the time that that was ending, you actually um, were appointed to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what is that organization, and, and what was your involvement with them? Uh, I was on the board of that organization. The Secretary of the Interior uh, appointed me, and um, that organization is a pseudo-government organization. They uh, they try to raise money privately, uh, and the government matches those funds for conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a really, really, really well respected uh, conservation organization as far as their ability to put projects on the ground at a really, really good price. Mm. Uh, because they generate so much of their funds from the from private private parties, okay, not just from the government. Uh, when I got on the foundation, their annual budget was 
$25 million a year. Same as the Game and Fish <laughs> in Arkansas. That? Yeah. But that was a national organization. Wow. And their annual budget was $25 million a year. Oh, man. But they became so uh, trusted by the federal government and by all the conservation organizations out there that when mitigation monies became available, like the BP spill in the Gulf, sure. the oil spill, yeah. $3 billion dollars the government made them pay in mitigation that went to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation for them to distribute to on conservation programs because they were so trusted. Wow. Today their budget is $500 million a year. That's quite a bit it bigger. It was $25 million when I got on it. <laughs> quite a bit bigger. $500 million a year. Wow. Um, but they do the same thing we did with Acres for America, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Um, they leveraged those few dollars, those very few dollars they got from the federal government in a huge way mm. and, um, and are putting a lot of great programs on the ground. What are some of the programs that they've kind of put out there? Well, I'll tell you one that they, uh, that they really fouled up on. I was chairman of, <laughs> I was chairman of the Endangered Species Committee oh. for the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, and one of my charges was to find the... Uh, ivory bill woodpecker, oh, and, no and, and I see love if, this story and <laughs> already, <laughs> and see if it was really still in the big woods. Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked on that for a number of years, for about four years. And so they said, "Go, go find it." Yeah, I, we could have found Bigfoot four times before we found that <laughs> ivory bill woodpecker. I guarantee you. Oh my goodness! I remember all the rumors? Uh, yeah. I don't know how many years ago now, but it, my grandparents talking about it in Little Rock. Of oh, I think. They think they found it, or somebody said they saw one. Or they really did, and, and some very, very credible sightings. Mm-hmm. Some very credible sightings from people that know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't know a ivory bill woodpecker from um, from <laughs> a pileated woodpecker. I, I would probably, but, yeah. but uh, from people that absolutely knew what they were doing. So it was a. It, they were. I was. They were chasing a a ghost that we believe was really there. Wow. And uh, that was fun. That's a exciting. cool project. Yeah, it was. But it's one of one of many of my dismal failures. We, did, we never you found never it. You never found it? Uh-uh. Did you find Bigfoot? Mm, could have. <laughs> <laughs> Just weren't looking. You're looking up in the trees. Yeah, you're right. looking up. That's right. That's right. So that was that was one. But what are some other things that, that they've kind of put on the ground, some other projects that, that they've well, been involved with? The one I'm most happy about is, is Acres for America. Right. Um, after I retired... Um, I'd been retired uh, eight or eight years or so, and uh, I had an idea. Walmart was having really a hard time in the late 90s and early 2000s on building stores in some metropolitan areas, um, California and and up east in Boston area. Mm -hmm. They were having trouble building stores because the environmental community hated Walmart, Mm -hmm. Not just Walmart. They hated all the big box retailers because mm-hmm. they were eating up the landscape. They were, you know, they were destroying habitat. They were, they were bad guys, and it was very difficult for them to to go into new markets like those markets and put up stores. Right. And I went to Rob Walton and Lee Scott at the time. Lee was CEO, and Rob was chairman of the board, and said, "Why don't?" We see. Why don't we put together a program where Walmart would put one acre of land in conservation 
for every acre of land that they have ever developed or ever would develop. And that might get the conservation community on our team, or we might get on their team, mm -hmm. or we might be on a team together. And um, both Lee and Rob had already been talking about wanting to get involved in the environment mm. in a serious way. And to make a long story short, which I have trouble doing, um, <laughs> they agreed to commit $35 million over 10 years to try to put 360,000 acres into conservation. Um, we got with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, told them what we were thinking about doing, trying to do. They fell in love with the idea. Um, they agreed to be the organization that would run this program, Acres for America. Walmart would fund it. Uh, Walmart wouldn't have any say over the areas that we were trying to put in conservation because mm -hmm. we weren't going to just do it, you know, so we could build a Walmart store here. Gotcha. We were going to take areas that had true conservation potential. Right. Uh, that were pop that were conservation rich. Mm -hmm. um, so the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation picked those areas. Walmart funded it, and the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and all of us that were working on it leveraged other private individuals and other organizations to put in money. And we ended up uh, leveraging Walmart's three and a half million dollars a year. Uh, almost seven and a half times. Wow. So we ended up, after the first 10 years, we put over a million acres of land in conservation. Wow. And Walmart, um, in 2005, agreed to, uh, no, to, I'm sorry, 2015, agreed to put another $35 million in, and their goal is to do another million acres, and they're almost there. Wow. Already. And that's all over the U.S.? All over, acres, all all over, over the U.S. Okay. But we've had quite a few projects right here in Arkansas, right. too. Um, what were some of those? Uh, Smith's uh, Landing. We've had uh, one of the ones right close to us here, uh, Devil's Eyebrow Natural mm -hmm. Area. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had over 100 uh, conservation organizations um, get involved in Acres for America. Everything from that's the, so cool. The great big ones like you know the Nature Conservancy and and Ducks Unlimited uh, down to the very uh, very small ones like backcountry yeah. hunters and anglers. Right. And they're only small because they're new and they're growing, but they're going to be a force. Yeah. But uh, that's been a very very uh, rewarding program for me to to see that that many acres being put back in public hands. Yeah. And you kind of you founded that idea that the whole acres for america because of your unique kind of relationships with with walmart and and um and nifwif right right and 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 it helped walmart too because the conservation society the conservation community now loves walmart mm -hmm. because they know they're doing the right thing yeah and um and it makes their business better and easier yeah and it, and it uh and it makes our planet better yeah yeah it does so it's, uh, what was the what was the conversation like? Were were Rob and Lee were they pretty on board with it from the get go, or did you kind of have to do some convincing? They were not on board for uh, from the get go as far as the amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, they were they were excited about the concept. Yeah, uh, but I, when I told Rob that he asked how much it would cost. 
to put that much land, not the, not the million, but yeah. the 300,000 acres into conservation, I said about $250 million. Oh. <laughs> then then after he, we revived him and got the smelling salts out, got him back <laughs> to earth, I said, well, we're not going to ask you to come up with $250 yeah. We're going to ask you to come up with $35 million <laughs> over 10 years. And then he, then he oh, okay. got a little better. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I'm sure that's a big number to hear. Like, oh, well, man, it I was can't... particularly then. I mean, that was yeah. that was a big number then. Yeah, absolutely. it's a big number anytime. But it, it... yes, it is a big number anytime. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong, um, man. That's just such a huge um, contribution. I think if you think about too, I mean, how many people and and across the country, people who hunt and fish, or they just like to get outside and they they want to use public land and and just enjoy being outside thinking about how many people across the country not just in the state of arkansas like that program has affected i just think it's a it's a really cool um really cool concept that you you helped develop and kind of founded um another couple so a few other things and and we can go through these quick there's there's so many things we could talk with you about and we could probably spend two three four hours with you just chatting up everything you've done um but in 2020, you were honored with the Lifetime Conservation Achievement Award um, presented by David Bernhardt, which is the Secretary of the Interior and National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. What was that award for, and, and um, what, what did that process look like of kind of accepting that? Uh, just I, I didn't know it was going to happen, to tell you the truth. It was, uh, I was asked to go with, with Walmart to D.C. to a reception that they were having to um, talk about acres for wildlife. And uh, th- they sprung that on me when I was there, so I, t- I didn't. I it just didn't, yeah, I hit didn't, you. I didn't know that was going to happen. I wish I had known because I would have loved to have my wife with me at yeah. the time because she's she's the one that allows me to do all this junk I do mm-hmm. um, and supports me in all that, all the conservation areas that I've been working in, and and I support her and the goals that she has on working with her her favorite interests yeah uh, one of which is children's hospital that's, that's right what, yeah that's, yeah you so you were talk to us a little bit about that you you led you and your wife cynthia led the campaign to kind of raise the funds for arkansas children's northwest right we chaired the capital campaign for that um along with um, our younger daughter and her husband okay um we were asked by the uh, arkansas children's hospital foundation if we would chair the capital campaign for that. We, um, our grandson, uh, when he was three years old, Jimmy Tucker, uh, was diagnosed with um, acute myeloid leukemia. Mm. And at the time, um, my daughter had just started her law practice uh, and her husband had just started his own business. And they had to go to Little Rock to Children's Hospital, and they ended up living there for six months. And so they had to leave their businesses, and mm-hmm. um, they had to be there with him. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible time. And we knew that Arkansas Children's was thinking about um, building a, a hospital here in northwest Arkansas. Gary George, who owns George's, um, had been working on that for a long time. Um, but Fred Scarborough, who is the president of the CEO of the foundation, 
asked my wife and I to chair a capital campaign to get it kick-started. And we wholeheartedly uh, went after that. Yeah. And thank God and bless the people in northwest Arkansas. We had a goal of raising $70 million over five years privately. Right. And thanks to people like John Tyson, people like uh, the Wal- Walton family, thanks to people like that, we were able to raise $83 million in two and a half years. Wow. And um, that got the Children's Hospital going fast. And that's what, so then after you, you guys raised that in two and a half years, were you guys able to start building a yes. lot sooner? Yes. Yeah, able to start building um, literally as after the first year of that campaign, when we saw what was happening, we were going full bore on building no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> it was going to happen. Yeah, so, going. We, so we had to raise the money. Yeah. Um, but it's it's been great, and it's it's it was sorely needed. We knew that, but we had no idea it was needed to the extent that it that it is. Mm-hmm. The uh, the patients uh, that have been through there, are, the numbers are way higher than we anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really desperately needed. And yeah. it's, it's drawing people from uh, a f- big four-state area mm-hmm. right now. Um, so yeah. anyway, it, it helps families like... My daughters now who uh, can get treatment close to home right. uh, without having to travel three or four hours mm-hmm. like, like we were having to do yeah. constantly and leave their businesses. and So it's it's been a great project. It's yeah, that's huge for this area. Fun. I'm, I'm sure that as people move here more and more, that's just one more thing to check the box of like there's an incredible children's hospital here. And that's, you wouldn't believe this, Kyle. You wouldn't believe how many people that we've met that have said, I was courted by J.B. Hunt to come here four years ago, five years ago. I was courted by Walmart. People have called us and told us this. Mm-hmm. When we got, we had children that had special needs that mm-hmm. we couldn't leave where we lived. Mm, yeah. We couldn't leave where we lived. They have moved here, taken jobs here because of that hospital. Really? Mm-hmm. It, it, I bet we've had a dozen of those encounters. Wow. Wow. It was just, it was amazing. Man, that is cool. So that, you know, that brought some talent into here mm-hmm. that wouldn't come. Yeah, absolutely. But, but it, it, when I was, you know, talking earlier about no airport, no interstate, mm-hmm. um, I was on the um, on the Northwest Arkansas Council when I was running uh, the grocery company. And our goals were to get an interstate through here, yeah. get an airport built to get water supply mm-hmm. for Northwest Arkansas for the next 25 years planned out. And those goals have all been done now, mm. all been done. But that's, that was another reason we couldn't attract talent. When, when I went to work for the Walton family, we could not recruit people to come here. Yeah. The, the schools, bless their heart, were terrible because there was no funding. I mean, there were, there, the languages weren't even taught in school. There were no computers. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it was, it was, it was. We were behind the times here. Way behind. Yeah. Then, then. Yeah. But getting those things to happen, like the interstate, like the airport, like the children's hospital, getting those things to happen. Now, Walmart can't get people to leave here yeah. and go run and go run a, you know, something somewhere else. Right. Yeah. When they need, nobody wants to leave. When they need a, a regional vice president to go in 
Timbuktu, they, they we're, we're <laughs> not like, going no, there. No yeah, thanks. <laughs> so we couldn't recruit. Now we can't get them. Now you can't get them to go. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, there are some other things too, and and I'll let you kind of talk about. There, there's some other things that you're actively involved in, actively uh, actively supporting. Um, Feather Society of Ducks Unlimited, um, the Trust in Food and America's Conservation Ag Movement. What kind of walk me through some of those um, pretty quick, and then we can we can talk even more about what you're focused on in the future, and kind of move from what you've done to to what you're looking forward to. Trust in food is something that I got really excited about. Uh, uh, individual came to me and said, uh, "We want to uh, help the farmer um, produce food that's that's more healthy, it's safer, it's." Uh, it's good for you, mm-hmm. and do it at a at a cost that uh, is neutral or cost effective for them. Yeah, that makes sense because you go to like Whole Foods, everything's organic, but it's twice the price. Can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what that's what I told my wife the other day. She wanted something that was organic, and I told her, I said, "Do you know the difference in organic mayonnaise and regular mayonnaise?" And she said, "No." And I said, she said, what's the difference? I said, $2 a jar. <laughs> That's the difference. That's it. <laughs> um, but that trust in food is actually a total conservation program. Hmm. It's for conservation. Really? It's to get people to raise uh, food, raise cattle, raise beef uh-huh. in an environmentally friendly atmosphere. Uh, in other words, rotational grazing and do all that stuff and not stripping the land. But yeah. anyway, it's it's a it's it's a much bigger deal than Acres for America. Really? Yeah. It, it's it's going to be the largest public private conservation program can be the largest public private conservation program in ever in the United States. Wow! Just because of it, so many people would be. A part of it and involved in it, or yes, because so many acres would be involved in it. Gotcha. Um, it, it it's going to put uh, hopefully conservation on the map at 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 a very very low cost. Wow, that's so cool. So your con- your conservation care doesn't even just apply to fishing, hunting, no. outdoor recreation. It's going all the way down to the, the food level. Yeah, and or it, up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> And that it, is awesome. And it needs to because, uh, like I told you earlier, you know, 40% of the people hunt or fish or, yeah. or bird watch. And less and less every day. And less and less every day. But 100% of people eat. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's true. And uh, that, that's why fish and game commissions and natural resource commissions, the other states, uh, the, whether they're called the Department of Natural Resources, the DNRs mm-hmm. or whatever in every state, hunting and fishing license sales are going down the tube, and that though that income was the by far the number one income of all these agencies mm-hmm. was hunting and fishing licenses, and things like the uh, Robinson Pitnam Act, where the government pays that same amount of money that they raise on fishing license is going down too because there's less to mm-hmm. match. Uh, that's why mm-hmm. these agencies like the Game and Fish need to try to attract the this new generation of, of people who enjoy the outdoors that who in, who have conservation in mind but don't have a focus on it how to do it how we can get we got to figure out a way to get them involved in actively involved in conservation through these agencies mm-hmm. get them involved so 
I'm, my goal is to just try to figure out how to target this next generation that doesn't hunt and doesn't fish that much, who uh, are not hook and bullet people, but they love to kayak, they bike, hike, um, canoe. They love to be in the outdoors, uh, love to be on the water. How do we get them involved in conservation? Mm. Um, and so, we I mean, even crazy things talking about change the name of a Game and Fish Commission to Department of Natural Resources, yeah. maybe, because, or do more. You know, it's, it's not just the, the fish and the, and the animals. It's, it's the environment yeah. as well. And that's a kind of that's a big mindset shift, right? Because for so long it's been managed just for game and fish. That's, exactly. That's how everyone knows the organization is called across the country, not just Arkansas. Sure, sure, exactly. But uh, anyway, that's just some of the junk up and yeah, <laughs> thinking about. So what's the so what do you what do you have going on right now? I mean, what are you what are you working on specifically within that, and and what organizations are you kind of involved in? Well, again, I'm trying to get uh, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation involved in that through agronomics, through uh, working with landowners, farmers prim- primarily, farmers, ranchers, okay. Okay. Uh, farmers, ranchers, and growers. Um, we, there's some of that I can't talk about yet. It's it's still in the making. The only reason I can't talk about it is because I don't want to say something and then it not happen. Sure. Okay. Sure. But. Um, this is going to be a big deal. I'm, I'm sure you're going to hear a lot more about this soon. Um, we've got uh, the um, everybody in in D.C., every organization in D.C. Uh, that's involved in conservation in any way, uh, the NRCS, the USDA, the uh, all those folks are getting excited about this, mm. and uh, and. Uh, I just I hope it's something you're going to hear about a lot. Soon. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it will be. I mean, if you're involved, it's it's, no, gonna, it's going to happen. For, uh, <laughs> I don't know that. Uh, is is there anything else that that um, you talked a little bit about um, getting young people engaged and and kind of using the fact that people aren't hunting and fishing as much and, and kind of thinking about what else they're doing? Uh, but another thing that we talked about was private land ownership um, and and why that's important and how we manage private land to uh, benefit conservation. That is such a uh, gold mine, uh, private lands. The, um, of course, we want as much land as we can get out there for the public to enjoy and use, but that's only uh, 12%, 15% max mm-hmm. uh, of the land in the country. Yeah. It's public, and the other 85 90% is private, mm. privately held. So the conservation value of 90% of the land versus timber is huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how do, we get, how do we get private landowners involved and deeply involved in conservation, um, n- not to let people come hunt and fish on their property, but get involved in conservation? How do, how do we get them involved in conserving it? And that's something that organizations like the Nature Conservancy, mm-hmm. like the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, like Ducks Unlimited, are really, really starting to work on hard. Yeah. Because if they can get these private landowners to uh, engage in conservation practices that are really, truly good for the environment, 
it not only helps our planet, but it helps the fish and mm-hmm. wildlife. It goes back mm-hmm. to that, reverts back to that. Right. It's like this property that we own here, um, this riverbank would wash out almost every year. Um, when the spring rains come in, they would raise the floodgates and they'd wash it out. Well, just getting a private landowner to agree to put in a riparian border to we're not going to cut trees, we're not going to cut cane, we're not going to do anything for you know, 100 feet from the middle of the river. Getting private landowners to do that, mm-hmm. um, using monies that we raise maybe from some federal monies but all mostly private monies to pay to help people do that, mm. to yeah. talk them into doing that. Right. And so that's, that's the kind of thing. But there's huge, um, huge opportunity for, for conservation through private landowners yeah. if we can get them on the, on the bandwagon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the pool is so much bigger when you're talking about 90% of land versus 10%. You can only do so much, really. Even if 100% of the, the public land was managed perfectly, yeah. you still have 90% of land that may not be managed perfectly. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you're... That's not a good. That's not a good balance there. If, if you're not managing both, exactly equally as well. Exactly. Is there anything else that um, for our listeners who are listening and maybe they're wanting to get more involved or learn more about conservation or or even just kind of wondering like what what they can do or, or why it's important? Is there anything that you would you would say to our listeners um, just to kind of to encourage them or or tell them kind of any any words of wisdom that you would give them? Um, yeah, um, keep listening to podcasts like you guys are doing i'm Keep serious to the ozark podcast <laughs> yeah i'm serious that's the kind of thing that when when you engage people to talk about what they're doing and other people listen to you um that gets things done mm. um th- that's so i'm just encouraging everybody to listen to the ozark podcast there you go learning's good <laughs> we love that <laughs> that's awesome well kirk thank you so much for your time and for having us out here to your cabin, you have an awesome place and even better stories. Um, we've we've really loved hanging out with you, and, and some of them are even true. And so, <laughs> if you're lucky, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you, thank you, Kirk, um, and to our listeners. If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure you let us know uh, and share it with a buddy. Share it on your social media, and if you really liked it, leave us a five star rating or review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V co-hosted by Adam Treese and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. Thanks for listening. Until next time. I am curious, did you ever get to uh, did you ever get to quail hunt with Sam Walton? Yep, sure did. Um, matter of fact, uh, Lloyd Peterson, who owned um, Peterson Farms, you all probably don't even remember that, do you? No, mm-hmm. I don't. Crystal Lake Chickens? Uh-uh. Uh, Peterson Farms owned the uh, male reproductive genes of the super chicken. And if you... What the heck is a super chicken? Uh, it's a chicken that can grow fast, real fast, and real high quality. Okay. Uh, they developed the genes and owned the gene pool for this chicken. Mm. And in 1990, for example, any chicken you bought in in a retail store mm-hmm. in the world, there was a 50% chance that it came from from Decatur, Arkansas. No way. Yeah. But it was a super chicken. The, the genes came from there. They flew, they flew chicks in planes to all the United States uh, f- 
for breeding. Anyway, Lloyd Peterson was a great uh, quail hunter. Okay. Uh, he's, he owned Crystal Lake Farms and, and uh, Peterson Industries. Um, he and Sam and I quail hunted a number of times. And uh, J.B. Hunt and Sam and I yeah. hunted a couple of times. J.B. Hunt ended up putting a big game ranch up in Missouri. Okay. Um, he was very much interested in and outdoor activities, of yeah, hunting and fishing as well. Yeah, did you get to meet uh, Old Roy? It was Old Roy, Old Roy, yeah, that's a real dog, right? Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. Old Roy uh, died a year after, I think, a year after we after we moved here. Gotcha. That's cool. I just see that when I go into the store, and it's like all the dog food is Old Roy. <laughs> I'm like that was his pet. <laughs> that's so cool. 